Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Today, we're talking about some new research on the cost to reduce runoff pollution from agricultural lands and prevent harmful algal blooms in Western Lake Erie. I'm joined by my colleague, Tom Zimnicki, who is the Alliance's Agriculture and Restoration Director. Tom, along with several partner organizations, recently released a new report that took a look at what it will take to meaningfully reduce harmful algal blooms in Western Lake Erie. In short, it's a good news, bad news situation. So Tom, welcome back to Lake, welcome back to Lake's chat. Thanks, Jen. Happy to be here. Um, now, over the past year or two that we've been doing this, we've talked quite a bit about Western Lake Erie's harmful algal blooms. Um, but give us a quick overview. What's the problem and why are algal blooms such a big issue, especially in that Western basin of Lake Erie? So every year, like clockwork in the summer, we see these large and you know, many, many, many square miles of, of algal blooms pop up in the Western Basin. Those are largely a result of excess nutrients, so nitrogen and phosphorus. Phosphorus is kind of the one that we care the most about. Um, getting into, into the Western Basin primarily from uh, both wastewater treatment plants as well as agriculture uh, and agricultural land uses uh, which is kind of the dominant land use um, uh, within that basin. And so the Western Basin is particularly susceptible to harmful algal blooms, um, partly due to its depth. Um, so it's a very shallow portion of Lake Erie. Um, so it also is is warmer. And so those two things kind of help fuel these excessive blooms. And so these are a problem, obviously, from you know, a, a wildlife standpoint and like a, a habitat standpoint, they also have huge uh, economic ramifications from a local tourism, local industry standpoint. Um, every year we see a number of, of boat trips and fishing trips canceled because um, people don't want to go on the lake. And, and frankly, it's sometimes not safe to go on the lake because the blooms are toxic. Um, we also see, and, and pretty famously in 2014, uh, we saw this bloom actually shut down the, the drinking water facility in Toledo um, because the toxins from the bloom had, had gotten into the distribution system. Yeah. And so, you know, on the wake, um, you know, there were a lot of factors at play, but kind of one of the big pushes, right, was in after that 2014 shutdown in Toledo. Um, and I think it was a year later, right, in 2015, uh, the governors of Michigan and Ohio, um, along with the premier of Ontario, right, Canada borders the northern side of the lake, um, they signed a sort of much lauded agreement to reduce phosphorus pollution flowing into Western Lake Erie by 40 percent by 2025. How are things going on reaching that goal? So at, at this point, it it is not likely. Um, I think I would say I'm, I'm quite certain that we're not going to hit that target. Um, you know, we had a, an interim goal of 20 percent reduction by 2020. Um, that target also was not met. And so uh, we certainly don't seem to be on track to meet those 2025 goals, you know, in terms of, you know, when will we meet them is a question that I get fairly frequently. Um, it's hard to say. Uh, there are a lot of factors at play, uh, but I think with, with a 
high degree of certainty, I could say we're not going to hit those goals in 2025. Got it. And so we're going to talk a lot about agriculture before we head over on that topic. Um, you know, and you mentioned this at the top of the our conversation that sewage treatment plants and there are other sources of phosphorus. And so, you know, are those sources under scrutiny as well, or is this really just agriculture? Yes, I, I would say the other main source is are those municipal wastewater treatment plants, um, so sewage treatment plants, things like that. Um, those the difference between those and agriculture is that that those wastewater facilities have a permit. And so they have a limit from what they discharge into the lake, what they discharge into the watershed. They have a limit of, of phosphorus that they have to hit, and that's an enforceable limit. Um, and so the difference then with agriculture is, is in large, that is an unregulated industry when it comes to pollution discharges and, and the amount of, of, in this case, phosphorus um, that's leaving agricultural operations and getting ultimately into the, the Western Basin. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of work happening, right, with those enforceable limits at wastewater treatment plants or sewage treatment plants to to get them down to those really as as kind of as low as they can go, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think long term, one of our concerns and certainly a concern that that others share in the region is that we continue to ratchet down on these point source permits because it is the one area that we can get these quantifiable reductions. And so at some point, we're going to run out of room to, to ratchet it further. And the the when you do that, and you have to in, install new technologies at, at these wastewater facilities, or you have to upgrade them in some other way, that that cost then gets passed on to ratepayers. And so we see in these made we already see in these major municipalities across the region, and the, a couple that come to mind, Detroit and Toledo, already are dealing with water affordability issues. And so this system of just externalizing these costs to those ratepayers to deal with the, the pollution and to deal with harmful algal blooms um, is, certainly is not a, uh, an equitable system. And, and the, it's not like a proportional um, like cost distribution for, for folks that are causing pollution. Yeah. And now you, along with our friends over at the Ohio Environmental Council and with technical support from Limnotech and the Delta Institute, uh, you just released a new report back in February looking at what it will take for Michigan and Ohio to meet that 40 percent goal. And, and the big focus there, you know, as we just talked, was on agriculture. Mm -hmm. What did you find? You know, are our current efforts working? So it's complicated. Um, I think in, in large, what we found is that both Michigan and Ohio need to significantly increase the, the acreage uh, in conservation practices. And throughout this, I might say BMPs, um, the, we need to significantly increase the number of those practices across the landscape. And what we found is that virtually every acre of, of agricultural land is going to need two to four of these conservation practices. And we are also going to have to significantly scale up things like wetlands and two-stage ditches, things that, that we would think of more as 
kind of edge of field or or structural practices. And so those that obviously comes with a huge cost. And so not only do we have to increase the acres, but we also found that that Michigan would have to increase funding over current levels by upwards of $65 million a year. And Ohio, which is already spending quite a bit of money through the H2 Ohio program, uh, would have to increase spending by another $250 million on an annual basis to meet the phosphorus reduction targets that, that we have for the basin. Got it. So it sounds like major changes are needed in what we're doing on farm fields and major changes in the funding, significant increases in funding. Absolutely. And and so a lot of these practices are, it's it's not like these are new practices, um, but, but we are going to need to, I think, get better at targeting and prioritizing which practices we put out there. Got it. So describe a little bit, you know, for folks who might not live in uh, a community with a, a, a rural community with a lot of farms, what does that start to look like on a field? You, you use some phrases like two-stage ditches or you know, edge of field practices. Like what, what do those kinds of things look like on, a, on, a, on farmland? So we're going to start seeing, we would need to see, start seeing more like buffers. And so areas between the edge of a field and often those border up to a ditch um, or there's some other water feature kind of meandering through a field. So we would need to start seeing more buffers and setbacks in those areas. We would need to see more wetland restoration and wetland construction in, in the basin. Um, you know, the Western Basin used to just be a big swamp uh, and then we started draining it, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And so kind of renaturalizing some of those areas, letting some of those areas go back into wetlands. Um, and so, yeah, so you would start seeing kind of these, these little pockets of, of areas that are not farming, that are not agricultural acres, kind of popping up across the landscape. And those buffers and those, uh, you know, wetlands and things, they kind of act as sort of a sink, right, before or a sponge to soak up some of that phosphorus before it can get into our waterways, right? Yeah, so it helps. They help um, hold some of that phosphorus. They also help with the the water quantity issue that we're seeing in the region. And so we, I think we have all experienced that rain events uh, in large part due to climate change are getting more and more sporadic. And when we have them, they are more intense. And so right now in these, these environments where they're heavily built with, you know, urban infrastructure or heavily drained, you know, in agricultural areas, that water moves downhill very quickly. And so that causes all sorts of infrastructure issues. It causes washouts in agricultural fields. And so being able to control some of that water quantity is going to have additional benefits outside of just dealing with the phosphorus piece of it. Got it. So now I know you were just uh, spent a couple days in Columbus, Ohio um, with some of our other colleagues. Um, and, you know, both states, Michigan and Ohio, um, are in the midst of their budget deliberations. And, you know, mm -hmm. you were talking with uh, legislators and agency folks in Ohio about those all of this yesterday. What would you like to see from Michigan and Ohio in their budgets, you know, as we think about ramp the need to ramp up some of these efforts? For sure. I, you know, so like I said earlier, you know, 
the state of Ohio has invested quite a bit of money over the last couple of years into a program called H2 Ohio. You know, one of the focus areas there is to expand wetlands within kind of the Lake Erie watershed, um, as well as kind of expand the use of, of other conservation practices. And so in, in Governor DeWine's executive budget, we see an increase in that program, as well as kind of a new emphasis on rivers and streams throughout throughout Ohio as well, and, and putting money into, you know, restoration and preservation there. Um, so obviously, great sign to see more money going into that, or at least proposed going into that. Um, Michigan has uh, a smaller amount of money going into kind of conservation practices at the state level. I think the, the takeaway for us based on this report is, yes, we need more money, we also need to, I think, be better about how we're spending that money. And so I think we as as the Alliance and a number of other partners recognize that we're not probably going to get another $300 million a year or in Michigan, you know, another $70 million a year just for this watershed. And so the money that we do get, the money that we are able to peel out of the budget, we want to make sure that it is being used in the most cost efficient way. So we are targeting conservation practices in parts of the landscape that are going to deliver the highest return from a water quality standpoint for the lowest cost. Got it. And, you know, shifting over to the federal government, you know, we've talked a lot in our past couple episodes about the Alliance's federal policy agenda, mm -hmm. you know, what we're trying to see in Washington, D.C. Um, and, you know, this year, as we've talked about, is what's called a farm bill year. And the farm bill is this massive funding package for agriculture and food issues across the nation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, does the federal government have a role to play in this whole issue? And, you know, are there opportunities in this big farm bill package that's coming down the pike? Absolutely. I, the, the bulk of the funding that flows into agricultural conservation for the purpose of reducing nutrients or reducing sediment or any of these other things, the bulk of that money comes through the farm bill um, and through USDA programming. And so, you know, in this farm bill, and this has been something that, again, folks have been pushing for for years, um, is is having the, the payments and those programs tied to some sort of environmental outcome, some sort of quantifiable outcome. You know, right now, the way that a lot of these programs operate is it's kind of like whoever raises their hand first, who's ever able to sign up the quickest, um, we can get money out the door. And, and we don't do a great job at both the state and the federal level of, of identifying the areas, the farms that are best suited from a, you know, again, if we're, the goal is water quality, the ones that are best suited to improve water quality with an investment. Um, we are, we, the collective, um, are really hesitant about telling farmers no. And we're really hesitant about saying, you know, this program is somewhat exclusionary. Um, and, and I understand part of the rationale to that. Um, but I also look at these huge like issues like Lake Erie, Saginaw Bay, and, you know, uh, uh, the Lower Fox River and, and Green Bay. Like we, we have limited resources we have pollution issues that are getting worse and worse every year or certainly are not improving. And so at some point, we're going to need to rethink this spending model. We're going to need to have to rethink kind of the program infrastructure that that funds these programs or funds these practices. Got it. 
And, you know, we've, you're sort of touching on a, a bigger issue that you and I have talked about just as I've educated myself on all this over the past couple of years. And, and we've talked about a little bit here on Lakes Chat. And, and that's just how complicated this whole mm-hmm. farm policy, agribusiness, food policy systems are both here in the U.S. and how that interacts globally. Do you, I'm curious, what's your gut? You know, is it possible to make the changes this report is describing? Because we're talking about the need to make some pretty significant changes if we really want to reduce those harmful algal blooms in, in Lake Erie. <sighs> How much time do we have left? Um, so I, um, I think it's important to recognize that like the situation in Lake Erie is one example of a trend that we are seeing across the country and across the world. Like algal blooms are popping up in places that historically have never seen them, and so this is and and again it's the same mix of you know human wastewater and, and agricultural land use. Uh, this problem is not going away. And, and this like the global food system that we have, the increasing population of, and needing to like feed the world, that, that whole mantra that, that folks have, that's gonna continue to put pressure on this. And so at some point, um, and we should have been doing this probably 50 years ago, at some point we need to have kind of a reckoning of what are we going to prioritize? Like, are we going to prioritize producing as much, you know, food as possible for the cheapest, for the cheapest price? Or are we going to say, you know what, the model that we have is unsustainable. Um, People are sick. Like the, the quality of some of that food is certainly not helping other parts of like human health. And we, we see these like exploding environmental issues. And these issues that that continue to get worse, um, and at some point we're going to have to make a change. Or the, the alternative is some sort of like desolate wasteland. And I and I I try not to be like doom and gloom about this, but like we are trending in this direction. It doesn't seem to be a huge concern at the federal level. Um, it hasn't like warranted any kind of an emergency. We become very reactionary, so. You know, you see algal blooms off the coast of Florida. And so now, you know, everybody kind of rushes and scrambles to figure that out. And then all of a sudden, you know, elected officials in Florida are like, oh, boy, we got to do something about this. Um, And then when we go back to talking about bigger kind of long term planning, those folks are absent. They say, well, we can't do anything to industry like we can't we can't put any kind of standards out there. We can't put any new regulations out there we can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to stay optimistic. Otherwise, like, why am I in this work? Right. Um, I would go do something else. So like, I have to stay optimistic. And, and I think my hope is that not only like the social pressure, but also just the reality will start hitting people in the face more and more, mm-hmm. especially again, as climate change kind of exacerbates these things. Um, I think it's going to be increasingly hard to ignore the issues that we're causing. Yeah. You know, and I think sometimes this is dismissed as like, oh, it just impacts, you know, people who want to go out on their boats or something, which it doesn't. I mean, that's a very serious issue. You know, tourism is a, you know, thinking of Western Lake Erie and Northern Ohio, tourism's 
big business up there, you know, folks who want to come and enjoy the lake mm -hmm. and go fishing. Um, and there's a real cost to people's pocketbooks. And you, you sort of briefly mentioned this at, towards the top of our conversation, um, but you worked with some of our partners on some research looking at the cost to downstream users who yep. are bearing the burden of this pollution, you know, the, the cost it takes to implement all of that stuff we talked about at sewage treatment plants, or, or sorry, at, and at water treatment plants, drinking water right. to make sure your water is safe. And so tell us, remind us a little bit about that research and what we found and, and what the cost is, you know, for folks who live downstream of some of this pollution. Yeah, so in, uh, in 2022, we put out a report that looked at what the cost is to municipal ratepayers in the Western Basin to deal with harmful algal blooms, the harmful algal bloom portion of their water bills. So these are these are things that are not broken out. It's not a line item on your water bill that says like, have, have treatment, um, you know, this amount. Um, but it's just kind of embedded in there. And we found that a family in Toledo is paying close to $100 a year just for that portion of their drinking water bill. And so this, and, and that was from data on a relatively mild kind of size from a bloom year. And so when we think about long-term, again, as blooms persist longer, and we saw that back in 2022, the bloom persisted much longer. Um, as we see that happening, as we see blooms get bigger, we can expect those costs to continue to rise. And so again, this gets into a, this system that we've created where, where we are pushing those costs to downstream ratepayers. And so one of the things that we're working on and that we, we brought up yesterday in legislative meetings is this need for the state of Ohio, and I would argue other states in the basin, but in this case, the state of Ohio to, to consistently collect data on those costs to municipal, municipal ratepayers um, th that they're paying for drinking water services to deal with the HAB portion, to deal with that elbow bloom portion. Because as ratepayers and as a state, we need to have better transparency about kind of what these costs are, and we need to be able to track those costs over time, um, again, as like water affordability or as, as water becomes and remains unaffordable for so many residents in the basin. Yeah. Yeah. $100 spread over a year doesn't seem like a lot, but if your bill is already really high, it could be a tipping point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that's also like <laughs> what, like a day and a half of minimum wage mm -hmm. work just to pay for the HAB issue that in a large way is generated by by entities that are not you, right? Like that mm -hmm. is that is flowing downhill largely again from agricultural land uses, um, and and those residents are having to to bear that cost. Yeah, you know we get a lot of questions. Shifting gears a little bit, we get a little questions a, a lot of questions about um, a thing called a the TMDL, a total mm -hmm. maximum daily load, um, which is a process under the Clean Water Act to sort of set up pollution diet to, to simp simplify a really complicated process. Um, but there's a TMDL process underway in Ohio for the Maumee River, which is one of the biggest tributaries to the Western Basin uh, and a key focus on this issue. So explain to our listeners about that, you know, what that TMDL is and what it can or cannot do to stop this problem. So the TMDL um, that's being developed in the Western Basin on Ohio's side of it um, is just kind of this is a pollution diet. And, and it says how much of a pollutant, and in this case, it's phosphorus, 
how much of a gluten can we continue to put into the watershed and into the lake for the lake to still maintain or for the water body to still maintain its, its function, right? And so swimmable, fishable, those kinds of things. Um, the, so the TMDL is, is largely numbers. So it's saying, you know, the wastewater treatment plants need to reduce by, you know, a certain amount over a time period. Um, and then other sources, like in, in this case, agriculture, which is lumped under non-point sources, need to reduce by this amount over a time period. Um, what it doesn't do is is provide any kind of new regulatory authority for either the states or the feds to be able to go to, in this case, agricultural entities to say, hey, you need to do X, Y, or Z things on your farm in order to reduce your output. The, the, the practices still remain mainly voluntary within the agricultural space. Um, and so what the TMDL does do though, and, and part of the benefit of it is it does provide kind of a, a benchmark that stakeholders, that agencies and others can kind of track towards, like track that progress towards rather than this kind of approach of just saying like, we'll do as much as we can wherever we can. And we're trying to get to this, in this case, like a 40% reduction goal. Um, this gives a little bit more accountability, um, but but again, doesn't provide any new regulatory mechanisms. Yeah, got it. An important potential piece of the puzzle, but it's not gonna fix the problem, right. sounds like. Right. Yeah, got it. So, What's next? You know, we've we've sort of talked about the long term. Uh, you know, what will happen if we if we don't take action? Um, you know, what should our listeners be looking for on this issue in sort of the next six to twelve months? You know, where it's as we mentioned earlier, it's budget season. Um, you know, yep. there's there's still there's a lot of activity happening on this. What's what's the outlook for that? Yeah, so certainly staying involved in the, the budget discussions, both in, in Michigan and Ohio, trying to, again, not only increase funding, but also make sure that that funding um, has some sort of uh, like specificity to it. And so we have some sort of more like reduct like targets for how we want to spend that money um, and to spend that money in, in, again, a more cost efficient way. Also looking at you know, as the TMDL in Ohio, uh, as that is completed for the Maumee, um, kind of watchdogging that process of how that gets implemented um, and, and kind of following that process through as the TMDL rolls out. Um, and then, you know, some of these other things that we've, that we've talked about, you know, looking at how do we increase the, the available information around how much residents are paying. And like, so those things are all can be, you know, go through a legislative angle. And so, you know, having those discussions over the next six to 12 months uh, are all on our plates. Got it. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for the conversation and for being here today. Um, and for our listeners, we'll get a link up to Tom's report and some fact sheets if you want to dig into all that on our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks, Jen. Thank you for listening. On our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, you'll find links to more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as opportunities to sign up for updates, to stay informed about Great Lakes issues, 
and how to get involved. Be sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode is released. A special thank you to my colleague, Michelle Farley, who produces this podcast.